Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris from PleasureMechanics.com, and on this podcast, we have soulful, explicit conversations about every facet of human sexuality. Come on over to PleasureMechanics.com, where you will find our complete podcast archive. And while you are there, go to PleasureMechanics.com slash free to sign up for our free online course, The Erotic Essentials. That's PleasureMechanics.com slash free, and you will find our free course to get started. All right, I am so excited for today's episode because I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to my great erotic mentor, Joseph Kramer. Joseph Kramer is an erotic pioneer and visionary. He was born a gay boy in the 1950s to a devoutly Catholic family. Now he is 72 years old, living in Oakland, California, and his lifetime has been one of erotic service to the world. He left his life as a Jesuit priest after discovering the reverent power of touch when he got his first massage. Joe is going to tell us his story of discovering the power of massage and breathwork together as he took psilocybin mushrooms and shared blowjobs with his friends and how this all crystallized into the practice of erotic massage, the combination of full body massage, erotic touch, conscious breathwork, and exquisite presence that creates one of the most exquisite erotic experiences that I've ever known. Joe went on to teach erotic massage all around the world in workshops, in professional trainings. He codified the category of erotic massage. And in this interview, he's going to tell that story of how a little gay boy from a Catholic family went on to become a global leader of sex wisdom. This interview is so deeply personal to me because Joseph Kramer initiated me into my life of erotic service. I had been a sex educator before I met Joe, but when Annie Sprinkle introduced me to Joseph Kramer, that was my initiation into a life of erotic service, into a life guiding others into what is possible in these human bodies of ours. What is possible not only in terms of pleasure and erotic trance and erotic ecstasy and the amount of pleasure we can give one another. That's part of what Joe taught me. But Joe also initiated me into these practices that teach us how big we can love, how much we can show up for one another. Charlotte and I met in a training that Joe and I were teaching together, one of the first sexological bodywork trainings in San Francisco. Um, so Charlotte and I met very much through this work. So my love story with Charlotte and my family would also not have been possible if I was not working side by side with Joe. And while my life has been touched so deeply by Joe's, and therefore your life, if you're a listener of this podcast, that is just one of the ripple effects of his work because he has trained tens of thousands of students. He has initiated so many people 
into a life of erotic curiosity and erotic service. And from working with Joe, I know he doesn't love to give interviews. He doesn't do it often. So I was really honored when he agreed to a long-form two-hour interview with me. And rather than start at the end, rather than start with all of his global accomplishments and his schools and the professions he has founded, and to talk about the global reach of his erotic knowledge... I wanted to start at the beginning. I wanted to hear his life story as it unfolded and share that with you as a story of an erotic pioneer whose curiosity and commitment to love and to pleasure created a life of erotic service to the world. So we are going to start at the beginning as he is born a little gay boy into a devoutly Catholic family and we are going to tell his story together. Gather round and join me for part one of my interview with Joseph Kramer, PhD. Cheers. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Hello, Chris Rose. Hmm. So, Joseph Kramer, you were born a gay boy in a Catholic family in St. Louis. Can you take us to that, to that moment of your birth? So how did the Catholic context of your childhood shape you from the beginning? I don't have a lot of memories about very early childhood. I have a couple I'll mention. My mother and father were rabid Catholics, not in the, the sense today of, a rigid and political type sense, but in a spiritual sense. So they went to mass every single day. Every single day they went to church. There were times of travel and all this they couldn't, but this is part of it. And so part of our, my upbringing was family prayers, family rosary, prayer, of course, prayers before meals, and going to Catholic schools. And the question came up, actually, and this is, a question that was around in the 50s, can we talk to the Protestant kids in the neighborhood? Can we associate with them? And it was really, there was a, an unspoken arrogance, like we are the saved and the Protestants aren't, and the other people aren't. But uh, my parents didn't say we couldn't talk to the Protestant kids. So it was a really closed system. The values, the, especially the religion and spirituality, and it was definitely... Um, bifurcated. It was, it was pleasure was, was almost a bad thing. Uh, it was unembodied. Our time on this earth, right from the time I was five and six years old, our time on this earth was just testing us for the real thing, which was heaven. And we were watched at all time. God was watching at all time. And I bought into this. Those, I had knew nothing else. This is how wonderful God is taking care of us. Uh, I found the life of Jesus, uh, especially his messages, the Sermon on the Mount, etc., wonderful. I didn't quite understand the, the death and resurrection part of it. I don't know if anybody totally understands that, but, but I bought into this. Or I didn't even buy into it. It was all that I knew. It's what I drank. It was like a fish in water. I didn't understand at the beginning the 
the anti-body and anti-sex. But I remember at about age three, and this is my earliest memory, I remember my mother, I was taking an afternoon nap and I had my hands, I was laying face down, I had my hands in my underwear, I was at three years old, and my mother said, don't touch yourself there, God doesn't like if you touch yourself there. And this is one of the first messages that I got directly to me about something I was doing that God didn't like. It was touching my own genitals. And it, I, there was hardly any, there was no reflection. It was a reaction that stayed with me to the present. I remembered that. And then the, so the genitals became this special place that God cared about. I could touch my elbow or my feet or my head, and God didn't care. But if I touched my genitals, it was kind of like the story of the Garden of Eden. You have the whole garden, but this one tree, you cannot eat the fruit of that tree. And of course, like Eve, I, it, as I grew a little older, and I'm ta- not talking puberty, I think five or six, I started touching myself there because this is the taboo place. I don't know where this came from in me, but I learned to masturbate very early. And I learned to rub myself and it felt good. And I got, I had orgasms and I remember them. And later, I, when I've studied this, perhaps 10% of kids have masturbate very early on and have orgasmic experiences, boys and girls and, and everybody around that and in between that. And was that pleasure burdened by a sense of shame already? No. Well, except that one thing from my mother, and I didn't quite hook it together. Uh-huh. So I was masturbating, but in, um, oh, second grade, first grade or second grade, comes the idea of confession in the Catholic school. And then the priest brings up um, one of the things that you might want to confess, and he's telling these five and six-year-olds, six and seven-year-olds, is if you touch yourself in an impure way, that was the terminology. And I go, I was thinking, uh-oh, that's the name for it. I'm touching myself in an impure way. But, but I didn't quite get the concept of hell and mortal sin. I, it didn't hook up till a little later about puberty Again, the, the, the same priests and others said, this is to touch yourself here will take you to hell. And forever and ever, and you're put here by God out of love to do this experiment. And by touching yourself, you can go to hell. If you die without going to confession, you go to hell. So I believe this. And it's, that started maybe at 12 that every time I touched myself, I knew I had to go to confession. I couldn't go to communion. This is very interesting because this is what I'm exploring right now. I'm realizing with all the emphasis on trauma that there is a, there's a large swath, if that's the right word, of the culture that has had not specific moments of trauma, but in their upbringing, it might be culturally for me, it was spiritual, and I think a, a lot of people grew up with this exact belief system. When I went to high school, to jump ahead of it, I went to a Catholic Jesuit high school. They had mass 
three days a week, and they had confessions before class, confessions during mass, confessions during break. And I would say out of 800 boys, a couple hundred went to, maybe more than that, went to confession every day. There was, and there was just this unspoken thing of why you're going to confession. As long as we're here, what happened is after, so masturbation, my penis, this arousal, this pleasure, was the crack, the, the phrase I got early on was the crack in the cosmic egg. I was in this, in this system, and this was the thing, I didn't know it, but this was the thing that was going to be the crack to get me out of this closed system. Um, I would masturbate, and then I would go into terror. And I mean actual terror. That if I died, and I would lay, and I'd think what flames all over my body, and that I was forever and ever. And I can't imagine, I've, and I've, um, that this was less worse than some of the other tra trauma terrors that people go through. And yet this was thousands of times because I masturbated a lot. And every time I, I, you had to go to confession, had the intention that you weren't going to do this again. That was part of it. And so there was this, there was this uh, system that placed huge emphasis on sexual arousal and pleasure and the body and avoiding it. And the irony is that when this, when I broke out of this, this is what was important to me still. And so my work became about pleasure and body and an emphasis on uh, starting with masturbation and penis. And But I think it's still there. And no wonder there's so much drinking among, you know, the Irish, they say. But among Catholics, it's kind of a numbing out of the body. It's a physical way of being in alignment with the religious beliefs. And I haven't seen a lot of speaking to this uh, trauma that people carry. And I know other religious backgrounds, other uh, ethnic backgrounds have similar suffocating beliefs. Uh, when I was going to, to, to uh, sex school, one man, a Mormon bishop, came and got his PhD at the same time as I did, and he did his PhD on uh, masturbation in the Mormon church. And there, there's no confession. So once you masturbate, you're impure. And what is what is dissertation was was suicide among boys because of this. And it goes on. They still teach this. I mean, in homosexuality and other body-based things that are not, uh, you know, heterosexual marriage. So, um, so anyway, back, that was my experience um, as a kid. But it, the masturbation was an entrance, and why I kept going back to it, it was an entrance into some other way of feeling. It was, there was an aliveness that I was in touch with. And that is still a major theme. That's why I do what I do. Get in touch with the aliveness within, our own aliveness. This is, this is who we are, alive. We could call it embodiment today. But in, the, in those days, that was my embodiment practice. Although in the system I was in, I, it was a horrible thing. Luckily, hormones or whatever, I kept at it. So let's tell that story a little bit. So you didn't run fleeing as soon as you turned 
18. Um, instead, you actually went deeper into your faith and joined the Jesuits. And as much as we can talk about the Catholic body shame and the sexual shame and that as a burden you carried from your faith, you also brought some gifts from your faith, your love of teaching, mm -hmm. um, your knowledge of pedagogy. Um, so you were in the Jesuit community for several years. And then one of your theology teachers went to Esalen and trained in massage and came home and offered massage as kind of, he was newly indoctrinated and wanted to practice. So can you, can you take us to that moment as a theology student and receiving your first massage and how, what you called the crack in the egg kind of split wide open? Well, I was still in this closed system, I would say. And what happened in late puberty is in late high school is I understood I was attracted to other boys and not girls. And in those days, there wasn't any big, I didn't see homosexuality mentioned anywhere except in prisons. And I remember being a 13 and 14 year old saying, is there some way I could commit a crime and get in prison so I could be with people who would do what I do? except I was the best little boy. I didn't want to commit sin, but I wanted. So I knew this was sinful. And the, I go, there's no future for me as a person, except what the church offers is uh, the milieu I was in was some status and to be of service by being a priest. So this was a logical choice. I went to a Jesuit high school. I saw there were 30 different um, teachers that I respected and revered, and they all seemingly had no sex, no masturbation, and this was the goal, the ideal, and they were doing it well and relating and teaching and being of service, and it was, a, my high school years were a great time. So at the end of high school, I go, yeah, this is the path that I'd like to do, I'd like to follow. I didn't think I don't have any other options because, but I wasn't thinking other options. But in terms of this uh, huge thing about sin, that was the only option that I had. And so I joined the Jesuits and was in the Jesuits 10 years. Uh, I was studying theology six or seven years, eight years into the Jesuits in Berkeley. And luckily I somehow got to Berkeley to study. Was that a deliberate choice? Like, did you know there were gay people there and you went? Uh, no, okay. I, but, I, but I, there's certain things that are emblazoned on my mind. And I remember watching television in 1963 and seeing the free speech movement starting in Berkeley campus. And there were riots and Reagan was, there was, the, was the governor and there was and I remember watching this, but it was all over free speech. And being, I felt muzzled, of course, at the time. I was in high school. Most of what I felt this aliveness, I couldn't speak. There were no words. So I, I went into the Jesuits. And again, this was blissful because there was, it was a celibate, non-masturbatory place, but there was lots, it was with men who were idealistic boys, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, and it was wonderful to be in that camaraderie and seemingly the part that was evil in me uh, was being stamped down in a sense or quieted. Anyway, I went through this and it was, 
was an educa- it was an education of the mind. It was an education of thinking. Jesuits are the thinkers and the the teachers and kind of of the church, and they run institutions. They run um, universities and colleges, and have you know for the last four hundred years. So, so I was on. I, I thought this was a wonderful path, and it was a path of service. This is really one of the big things I took from uh, from Jesus. You know, to be of service, and and even from my parents as Christians, that was that was big for them was service. My father, especially. So, um, so to be a Jesuit, and I was in Berkeley, and I was studying theology, and theology is like mathematics, like other things that it has almost no touch with reality, with the reality of the body, and yet I was in California, Berkeley. In the in the late this is the mid early seventies, and there was just amazing things happening bodily. But I I I didn't connect with them for a few years, but I did intersect with them once. And you started the story as a priest, um, who was my my academic advisor, went to Esalen and took a weekend workshop and came back. And I remember there were maybe two hundred. 150 Jesuits who were in Berkeley in smaller groups, but we ate in a big dining room. And I remember sitting at a table with about six other Jesuits, young Jesuits, and this priest came back and said, I had a wonderful weekend. I went and studied Esalen Massage down on big, in Big Sur, and I need to practice. If any of you would like a massage, let me know. There was this panic in all the people around me. And I looked and there was, I, there was a thing in me that goes, yes. Right away I said, yes, I would like that. And, um, and uh, he said, well, you need a massage table. I need to do a massage, it needs to be on a massage table. I remember taking the door off my closet in my room and tying it to the, my desk and putting blankets over it and all this. And I was really nervous because I was gonna be naked, because I was gonna be touched. And I thought, but he's a priest. You know, even my parents would be okay with this. So anyway, I got a massage. And it was a two-hour massage, and he was meticulous. And I, my attention, there was no distractions. My attention was at the point of contact for two hours. And I was feeling my body in ways that I never, ever felt before. And... uh, and there was not a fear that all of a sudden something was going to happen sexually or that I get aroused or all this, although I was naked. It was just feeling what was happening. He went through my body, my face, my head, all the way down, not my genitals, not my anal area, but everywhere else. And um, I do remember vividly the, the webbing in my feet and in my hands when he was doing this, especially in my feet. And I, I go, I didn't even, I knew I had webbing between my toes, but it was, it was so delicious. I was so awake. And he said, thank you, and gave me this and left. And I realized that that was the most important two hours <laughs> of education that I'd had in my whole life. I was introduced to my body. And I want to say I had one other practice other than masturbation and that was at age 14 I was I was in the car with my family 
a couple miles from my home when we were driving home. And I got in an argument with my father and he was just, he could be, um, he was, uh, we, we, we were at loggerheads. And he was at a stoplight and I just opened the door and got out and he drove off. And I go, I'm two miles from home. How am I going to get home? And so I, I remembered, I had read about this senator from Wisconsin, Proxmire, I think, someone who jogged. And I read, that's interesting. Nobody jogged in these days. <laughs> and I thought, I'll try jogging. I was 14 or 13. And so I started doing running and I ran and I ran two miles home. And when I got home, I was ecstatic. I go, you know, it was this, I started out like this. I just had this thing with my father and he left me two miles or I got out two miles from my home. I ran two miles. So the next day I went out and ran around the blocks. And the next day, and I, when I was in freshman year of high school, I joined the cross country team and I was terrible because I didn't run fast, but I ran long distances for that ecstasy. So I found that is a practice. So I had masturbation and running were my two practices. Now, when this happened, this massage, there was a third entry, a third practice into my body. By the way, when I had that massage, I had been running for years every day. So I ran between five and 10 miles a day to feel. It was to feel aliveness. It was, it was this, and I didn't, I didn't listen to anything. I, I just, I, it, was, it was being with my body. Light masturbation was being with my body uh, or like, like the massage was. Anyway, after the massage, I go, I want more massages. And I found out I was, a, I was a Jesuit. I didn't have any money. And I found, I don't know how I can get um, money to get massages, but I thought I need more massage. So, but what anyway, well, what happened is I, that after that, I didn't recognize that that was the beginning, but that was the beginning of the Jesuits are not a place for me. I need a place where I can get massage, where, my, where, where I can get into a full body feeling. I knew about my penis feeling. I knew the general feeling of running. But this was the sensuality of certain tissues that I had never accessed. That were, Did you change the way you masturbated after that massage? So I wasn't masturbated. There were times in my Jesuit years when I masturbated, but it was still not a, a practice it was it was a sin still, and I and I believe that. So there were times. In fact, I remember the first time I masturbated as a as a Jesuit. It was three years into the Jesuits, and I was in Denver, and I went out with this friend of mine, um, who's a priest now. He's a seminarian. He says, "Do you want to smoke grass?" We smoked grass, and I said, "I don't feel anything," and I went back to my room. I just lay down and all of a sudden I was touching myself and I couldn't stop. It was so, it was so amazing. So the first time I smoked grass was the first time I masturbated. And I was certainly guilty, but it was, it was, again, the grass was an access into this, into the aliveness, into the feelings, the gift of being embodied in our body. And theologically, I was saying, this is what incarnation is. The idea of God becomes man. And so the flesh takes on this role. And I go, yes, my flesh, I, you know, it's a celebration of my flesh. Anyway, I knew after that massage from, from my, from my uh, academic director, and he was my academic director, and he gave me information and experience that got me out of the academics. 
and I left the Jesuits within a year. And you moved to New York City. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to get, I didn't want to go back to St. Louis and the milieu I grew up in, so I moved to New York City, yes. And I also knew I was gay. Um, oh, no, one of, well, the first, it's a long story, but the sharp, sharp part of it is, after that, waking up, I, I was much more open, and I told the Jesuits that I had, that I was gay. I was in Berkeley, there, there were people who were out gay, and the Jesuits were freaked out. The head of the school said, no one's ever come in here and told me that. I go, you've run a school. I go, like one third or one half of these people are gay. No one's ever told you that. Anyway, so the Jesuits sent me to Toronto. And in Toronto, the, my spiritual advisor said, you know what? They're not going to ordain you as a priest, but they think you're too much of a liability just saying you're gay. They don't want, to, they don't want that out. They don't want that anybody who's gay is is a Jesuit is gay. And he says, why don't you take a leave of absence? Which was a wonderful thing. And he was, he was really a wonderful man. That took me to New York City. And um, I knew I was gay. So I thought, I'm going to meet gay people. I started by going to gay um, Catholic masses with dignity. And it was a wonderful, vibrant group of men and women who almost, so many of them had histories just like me. They were going to mass still at, in their 20s and 30s and 40s because they were, this was important to them, but they were also gay and sexual. And so that was my first couple of years uh, in New York. I met a lover very quickly, moved in with him. I had other loves. I was never monogamous. And I, and what I recognized is another way out for me was sex. I had, it was amazing. Sex, every time I had sex, it was this extraordinary experience. And I, I, it wasn't paltry. I, I, I know a lot of sex and a lot of masturbation could be paltry. And that, that's why I went this direction of teaching in my whole life. This is such an amazing potential in, in this, this activity we call sex with yourself or with others. And um, and I want to slow this down. So this is 1975. 76 to 80. I was in New York. Yes. Okay. So this is pre-AIDS gay culture in New York City. Yes, that was and important. Was this your initiation also to communal erotic experience? The bathhouses, the piers, there was a lot of gay sex communal culture at that time. So... I think, yes, it was. And com the communal aspect of life was what was impressed upon me in my 10 years as a Jesuit. And it kind of flowed out of family life, Catholic family life, the communal life, and working together as a commune, teaching schools, in Jesuits, teaching in schools together. The great work of life was done as a commune. as a So your work and your play and your living was communal. So when I came out as... In New York, I go. There's this subculture, and in the late '70s, it was there wasn't many people, and probably it was mostly people who were very gay, Kinsey sixes, but they were. It wasn't above the radar, so there were bathhouses and bars and places, but it was it was like a uh, 
a private realm. I was uh, where, and by that I mean there was it was there was there was a lot of freedom. I felt huge amounts of freedom within this of ways to relate to people. And I'm verbal. I was trained by the Jesuits in philosophy and theology and mathematics. And so words were always part of it. So whenever I was playing, words were a part of it. I don't mean talking dirty. I wanted to find out who this person was. Hey, do you like this? What's going on here? Um, when's, when was the first time you ever did this? You know, and, and shut up. I'm having, I'm having sex. I get that a lot. Um, but yes, it was, it was this communal aspect. And even, and even with my partner, my lover, we had close friends and they would come over and have dinner and we'd have sex together, you know. So it was very common that uh, sex was a communal thing and there wasn't the, the fear of STDs or, or especially AIDS. And certainly if there was, uh, gonorrhea was probably the major one, you go to the clinic and, and get it, you know. Uh, and I think... I think I got gonorrhea once. I know I went to the clinic once or twice. I don't know if I got, got gonorrhea, but, I, but, I, but, I, but there was no fear around um, having sex would be deadly or something really hot, terrible for our health. So hygiene wasn't a big deal. But it was an ecstatic time, and most of the people who were out as gay had to be really pioneers or explorers or are people who are expelled from their realities. So they were, there was this amazing group of people who had been involved in other communities, but now were, were forming their own, finding their own. So I was, I was in New York for three years, and um, later I learned about Wilhelm Reich, and he said, you know, orgasms shake the pathologies out of your body. That was one of his ideas, that an orgasmic capacity was about well-being. And so I think what, what was happening there was a, a, an, a Reichian therapy that I went through of, of vibrating out of my being. And it was heartful, too. There was, I, I knew all these other people were, were um, aliens. We were aliens to the culture, and yet we were making connections. And... I met amazing people and I have lifelong friends from that period. I had this, of, I called it sparking. And it was that when you meet people, you're bringing your best, you're bringing something and you spark and there's something that happens and you take away from that person. So the sex was sparking. And that there are all these men who are empowering each other and giving gifts. And that's kind of how I saw sex in those days. We're doing this amazing thing. So I was, I had a ball and, and I realized other people came, came with more wounds and less enthusiasm. I, so everybody wasn't in the same boat that I was in. When I later talked to people who we look back on this, I was like a cheerleader. Uh, I was, I was more, um, I, I put a lot of energy into this and people appreciated it. But but it was this communal experience that was uh, that influenced my work for the rest of my work for the rest of my life was those the communal erotic experience, and I named it later that this was a <laughs> I go I'm trying to think of a name for this this is a co-created erotic 
vibratory force field. And that was as close as I could get to it, that there was, you could cut it with a knife sometime what was created. So, uh, so yeah, that was my New York initiation into uh, gay culture and co-creating gay culture at that time. So you were in New York, you went back to the Bay Area and took an SLM class. And then you came back to New York and started teaching your community. So I went to, I, I thought maybe I want to finish my degree mm-hmm. uh, in theology. I left the Jesuits with one quarter. I had, I had one more quarter for a Master of Divinity. So I went back for a month just to see. And during this month, I saw an ad for Esalen Massage Class, four weeks for gay men. This is exactly what I'd like to learn. And it was cheap. It was like $60 for a four-week class. Milo Jarvis. Thank you, Milo. But I went back to New York, and I now had a structure. And this is one thing the Jesuits taught me was to teach. So they're teachers. And to start schools was a big deal for them. And um, so I offered a class. So the very first massage class I offered was probably 79 to a group of dignity people. A group of gay Catholics. Mm -hmm. I remember I asked somebody to bring the music because we needed music, and he didn't. And we were at this place um, a weekend away, and there was only one record. This was the year of records still. And it was um, flute music inside the Taj Mahal. And I still, I, sometimes I can't listen to it because it's, we played it over and over, but it was beautiful uh, to this massage weekend. And I just, it felt right teaching massage. I had taught English, I taught religion. And at that, there was one moment, Chris, when I said, I love teaching with my clothes off and everybody else's clothes are off. How can I go back to teach you with my clothes on? So that was another watershed right there. Wow, teaching with your clothes off. So uh, yes, it started there. Well, teaching with your clothes off, but also ushering a group of people into this embodied state of massage. This is a gift you gave me of being the, the facilitator of that is a deeply moving experience. I know exactly what you mean. So this is 1979. How did the massage become the Taoist erotic massage? How did this massage become erotic for you? So let me, let me first mention that this massage, I, that in my gay nonstop sex, huge amounts of sex in New York, it wasn't very hands and massage oriented. It was sex, there was play, but it, hands take a little more skill, I, I guess, than, than, or maybe not, but, but hands wasn't part of it. So, so for me, I was now had a new, something new to introduce to my, um, uh, to my repertoire. In fact, um, I felt in New York that casual sex uh, intercourse where uh, and people were not using condoms at that time that this was very I just felt this was private that this was between me and my lover and that other types of sex oral sex blowjobs and other things were what I did out in the world 
but I didn't know massage yet. So what happened after I learned massage and actually moved back to the Bay Area, I had a group of friends. And so we started giving each other massage with oral sex. And so I became good. I call it blowjob massage. I'm giving somebody a, a massage. I'm at the massage table sucking their cock and I'm massaging and waking up parts of their body while the, the pleasure, the excitement's being generated and I'm moving it around the body. And the idea was never to come quickly. It was to not come. It was to feel your whole body. And uh, there was a, a, a second element here. One of my friends was really into psilocybin mushrooms. And, um, and I explored during my Berkeley years with LSD and mushrooms, but LSD was an eight or 10 or 12 hour trip and psilocybin mushrooms was two or three or four. So it was more doable. Anyway, we would take mushrooms. I would take mushrooms and receive and give these massages. And um, right now, I just bought a book yesterday, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. It's on my bedside table, Joe. It is on your bedside table? Yes. Well, what I understand is how to change your mind is psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And I go, whoa, this is, I have to find out his approach. But he, a lot of what he talks about is... Um, the kind of breaking the monitor of um, propriety of like the self-regulation that keeps us kind of caged. And so much of what we know about the erotic is the need to give ourselves permission to go to the ecstatic. Like these states that we're talking about, most people have never received permission to even think about, let alone explore. And psilocybin, I think, is one of those um, shortcuts to cracking open consciousness. Okay, so you're exploring this with friends on the massage table, including oral sex. So much of how I think about the erotic touch work is we learn massage skills. We activate our hands as tools of pleasure, as tools of communicating intentional touch. And then we bring those skills to the genitals, to the anus. So were you conscious of the moment where you started massaging the cock? Mm-hmm. How did these strokes start articulating themselves in your hands? Well, f- first of all, the cock had a real prominence for me right from the time I was four years old. So it was never I, a hand job. I, I've heard of hand jobs and finishing up and releases, but I never saw that as important. I thought this is, this is, uh, there's a masterpiece to be created here, and there's a symphony, an orchestra. There's all this pleasure, there's connection. As a masseur, uh, and during the 80s, I gave maybe 3,000 massages, maybe three to 5,000. And I called myself a massage monk. And what I learned is touch isn't a mechanical thing. Touching tissue that is and my hands are feeling something and they're reacting and there's this communication back and forth. So there's a language that's happening. That's not about a thought, it's a language where, um, where I would touch and there'd be a reaction that, that said go deeper or lighter or move around or, or what to do. And what happened is more and more, the reaction I got from people I touched was, I don't know how you did it, but you did exactly what I, my body needed. And when I thought of some place I wanted you to go, you went there. And I, that's, so that's this communication, not just on the penis, but on the whole body. 
yes, when I touch penises, people go, I've never been touched like that before. Oh my God. There was one more element, and that was when I'm doing these mushrooms, my partner out here said a friend of his from college wanted, uh, was teaching a breath class, and it was going to last a year. And so I, I didn't know what this was, but there were classes in body, in touch, and all kinds of things happening. So, so let's do it. And it was a year in rebirthing breath, which is a breath where there's no pause at the top or the bottom of the breath. Or it could be slow or faster. Or, but it's no pause at the top or the bottom. When you do that, there's, there's a high, there's an orgasmic feeling. So all of a sudden I had another tool and I recognized that running was very similar to this because you breathe, but you use the oxygen up in the running. In rebirthing, in this breathing, you get the oxygen in it and it isn't used up. It goes through the blood to the cells and there's this ecstatic feeling of, of more and more vibrancy. That's what the oxygen does. So with mushrooms and touch and blowjobs and breathing, that those were all the things we're exploring in uh, uh, 79 and 80. And the breath workshop was with Claire Arneson. Is that Claire right? Arneson. She taught breath that year and she did individual sessions with me. And in the individual sessions, her, 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 back, her background wasn't Catholic. And she says, you have a lot of rigidity in your body. And this is after I'm running every day for years, for 15 years, and I'm doing uh, mushrooms and I'm, I'm learning this breath. But the breath... I learned there were places in my body it wasn't going. And it's, as you say, self-regulation that doesn't, that doesn't serve us. So I was regulating. And I thought, if I'm regulating my breath, I'm probably regulating sexual pleasure. Also, I'm regulating all kinds of things that I don't know about, which is what Jung calls the shadow. Things that we're doing that are influencing us that we're not even aware of. Habits. Um, but what happened is I... People came to me, I, a lot of the people I worked on for massage were gay men, and they would come to me and they go, oh, I want, they wanted to be jerked off because that was part of massage, they thought. They go, no, that, this is not what I'm about. I, really, that was in my private life, but this, I'm a professional masseur. Till one day somebody said, he said, you give the best Catholic massage, and that jolted me. I said, what do you mean? He says, you don't touch the genitals. Other masseurs in 79, 80, 81 touched genitals. And I go, anyway, I remember the exact day I was doing acupressure on someone and I asked him to start breathing. And I had not really used this breath in my sessions, but I was holding points on his body and he started breathing. I could see he was getting ecstatic. And my other experiences with breathing at someone else had been blowjobs and, and, uh, but I didn't want to, I wasn't going to give him a blowjob. So I said, you know, I've been trying this with some of my friends. I told them where I touch, I touch your penis. I was so clinical while you're breathing to see what that would be like. And I remember he was a therapist. Uh, I remember, and he was, he says, okay, let's try this. And so I did with my hands what I was doing with my mouth but, and had him breathe. And he went into a place that, um, that I was going into 
uh, with my friends, but we did it regularly. This was the first time he'd ever done this. And he goes, oh my God, I just went someplace. I had an experience I've never had before. And he came back every week for sessions, I remember. But then I started thinking, maybe I should do this professionally. And it's not hand jobs. It's not just giving somebody a release. It's giving somebody a waking up because the breath circulates the excitement through the body. So that was the beginning. And little, I then decided I need to advertise erotic massage. That's what I'm doing. And the gay papers in San Francisco, where I got most of my clients, I lived in Oakland across the bay. I asked them to have a category called erotic massage. They go, no. I said, wait, you have hustlers, escorts that, that are offering all kinds of kinky services, and then you have massage. And finally, they said yes. And so I, an erotic massage category started, which became very lucrative for them. But, um, and lots of people came to me. And so I explored erotic massage with my hands, with breathing, and I found the breathing got people into their body. A lot of people disassociate when they go into sex or they freeze from, from mild or, or major trauma uh, or they're distracted regularly. But whatever's going on, if you're breathing in a conscious pattern, you have to stay present to breathe. And I could tell right when they go away, they're... So I'm giving them a session. They just went away. And I would call them back. So the breathing became this time when they, that's why people had amazing experiences, because they couldn't eject out of the experience when they're breathing. I think the breath also circulated and relaxed. It was pleasurable. But it was also a clue to me that I could keep, how I could keep somebody present for this erotic experience. And a lot of people, the erotic experience for them is ejaculation. A lot of men, and probably orgasm for women. But in this process, they had to pay attention to, um, to this whole process. And I quoted uh, a Catholic saint often, St. Teresa of Lisieux. She said, heaven is all the way to heaven. <laughs> that was my statement that we're not, we're, heaven isn't out here. Well, it's just this whole process. And so that's where Taoist erotic massage started. And yet it was in my private practice and it was, I was quiet about it. Um, I, was, I wasn't ashamed of it, but I just, um, yeah, I was private about it. it. I mean, I was advertising papers, but it, I had no thought of, like I taught massage, of teaching erotic massage or anything like this at this time. It was several years later. Mm-hmm. All right. I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Joe Kramer. Next week, we're going to talk a lot more about erotic massage and teaching erotic massage in classrooms all around the world. Join us next week for part two of my conversation with Joseph Kramer, or visit us at pleasuremechanics.com for our complete podcast archive, and go to pleasuremechanics.com slash free for our free online course. I'm Chris from pleasuremechanics.com, wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.